you know, there's talk about removing white Jesus statues because that's scandalous. And then others, there are black Jesus paintings and Chinese Jesus statues. And how about the Jewish Jesus? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Are you ready to have your eyes opened? I mean, really opened. I mean, as in, oh, my, open. When you've tuned in to the right show, Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. We may blow away some preconceptions. We may challenge some thinking today, but I assure you, we will present you with truth. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. That means that the only calls we'll be taking must be Jewish-related. So if they're related to Hebrew questions, Jewish law questions, Jewish tradition, modern state of Israel, Messianic prophecy, Jewish background to the New Testament, those kinds of things, phone lines are open to 866-348-7884. One of the things that has happened now with the Black Lives Matter movement, which we distinguish from the important statement that, yes, black lives do matter. But one of the things that's happened with the Black Lives Matter movement, it it is iconoclastic. It is destroying images. It is destroying icons. It is destroying what it considers to be cultural idols and relics of a wrong past. It is very much Marxist driven. It is it is very much destructive in its ideology. So whereas it may make one good point, it's outweighed by many bad points. I'm talking about aspects of the movements, the one that are that want to tear down statues, say, of, of George Washington or or Abraham Lincoln or or others like that. Well, one of the things now is we've got to get rid of these white Jesus statues. We've got to get rid of the white Jesus statues because that's based on racism and so on. And so that has created a, a whole firestorm. And we'll get to that in a moment. But do we have any actual first century statements about what Yeshua looked like? We know the prophecy in Isaiah 53 speaking about him says that he's, he's not going to, to be an extraordinary appearance. In other words, it wouldn't be his physical appearance. He'd just be nondescript in, in that regard. But does it give us any more details about him? Well, the answer is no. And if you will go around the world and look at the iconography, religious artwork, and, and, and the iconography of Jesus, so religious artwork about Jesus, if you go to China or if you search online for Chinese images of Jesus, you will see Chinese images of Jesus. In other words, he looks Chinese. I even searched last night for Eskimo images of Jesus, and there is Mary and Jesus, Miriam and Yeshua, looking like Eskimos. That's perfectly understandable, because we recognize that the Son of God came into our world and took on human form, that that Yeshua became one of us, an actual human being, fully God, fully man. He actually did that. So it's natural 
if we think of him in our own image. It's perfectly natural and understandable. To, to a point, when I was in college, there was a, a friend of mine, African-American friend, solid believer. We fellowshiped a lot about the Lord. And he invited me, excuse me, he invited me to visit the church he went to in Brooklyn. It was a mega church back then and famous uh, leader of the congregation, very impressive, powerful meetings there. When I walked in, though, there was a mural on the wall. Now, I was not used to any artwork, any depiction of Jesus whatsoever. So that was the first surprise, but it was the Last Supper. And it was Jesus and his disciples, and they were all black. Well, that surprised me. And I asked him about it. He said, when, when you look at a yearbook or a class picture, what's the first thing you look for? You look for your own picture. He said, so people are going to come and look for something they can identify with, and that's a black Jesus as black people. It didn't bother me at all. And in point of fact, as we'll show in a minute, Jesus wasn't black or white as, as we would relate to these colors and, 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 and race, skin, backgrounds today. Uh, but it's, it's interesting, though, that you'll find it in culture after culture. Now, the problem is, if you have a white Jesus, and then as the white man come with your message to another country, you come to India, you come to Africa, and you are colonizing the people there as whites with a white Jesus, then Jesus becomes the God of the, of the colonists, of the conquerors, of the slave traders, whatever. That's when it becomes problematic, right? But it's, it's understandable that each culture would envision Jesus being one like them. Now, there's an interesting statement from a rabbi who lived from the year 90 to 135 A.D. So within a century of Jesus, Rabbi Ishmael. And, and listen to what he said. It's a discussion in the Mishnah uh, about Sara'at, which is the uh, skin disease that is translated leprosy, but it was something other than leprosy. And uh, it, it says this. This is Mishnah Nigaim, the beginning of the second chapter. The bright, and I'll just read the English here, the bright spot in a German appears as dull white. So it's this, this bright spot, they're trying to analyze what this is and how to recognize it. So in a German, this, this Tsara'at, later called leprosy, this bright spot appears as dull white, and the dull white spot in an Ethiopian appears as bright white. Rabbi Ishmael says, the children of Israel, then parenthetically, may I be atonement for them. You say, what's that about? We'll come back to that later. But it's an amazing statement. The children of Israel are like boxwood, neither black nor white, but of an intermediate shade. Now, the Hebrew is just benonim, which is not shade, just in between. The children of Israel, and he's writing this as someone living in, in what we call the land of Israel today. He's writing this within a century of the time of Jesus and saying the children of Israel aren't black and they aren't white. They're like boxwood. You might say, what does boxwood look like? What, what does boxwood actually look like? Well, if you'll, you'll click online to see what boxwood looks like, you'll, you'll see that boxwood is, is actually, I'll read a description here, uh, in color appearance, boxwood tends to be a light cream to yellow which tends to darken slightly with prolonged exposure to light, sapwood not distinct from heartwood. So here I'm looking at an actual picture, and if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, you're seeing this as, as well. 
that boxwood is a light cream to yellow. This is how Rabbi Ishmael, or Rabbi Ishmael, described the children of Israel, said like boxwood. Now, here's what's really interesting. Over time, the big issue in, in, in history, medieval history, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, the issue was not a white Jesus versus a black Jesus, a white Jesus versus a Chinese Jesus, a white Jesus versus an Indian Jesus, or, or an Eskimo Jesus, or a Jesus of another ethnicity, a Hispanic Jesus. That wasn't the big issue. The issue was a white, Gentilized Jesus versus a Jewish Jesus. That was the big issue. This was part of the anti-Semitism in the church or the separating from the Jewish roots of the church. Uh, Bernard Starr, a Jewish psychologist, wrote an important book. Uh, it was actually, he's been on the air with us a couple times years ago. He was impacted by some of the debates I did with, with Rabbi Shmuley. Uh, he has a book, Jesus, Jews, and Anti-Semitism in Art, How Renaissance Art Erased Jesus's Jewish Identity, and How Today's Artists Are Restoring It. Bernard Starr. There's a whole book on that, and he actually goes through artwork to show how Yeshua becomes this fair-skinned European, Okay, many of you know that. No big news there. But then the rabbis or the Jews are monstrous. You say, oh, Dr. Brown, I think you're exaggerating. Okay, let's look at this picture by Albrecht Dürer. In, it was panned, according to what I know, in 1506. And it's called Christ Among the Doctors, meaning Jewish doctors, meaning doctors of the law. As we look at this picture, it, it's, it's quite shocking. It's depicting Jesus as a boy. He's, he's long-haired. He's got what, reddish hair. He's, he's fair-skinned. Anything but a, a rugged first-century Middle Eastern Jew that was a carpenter, builder. And he's surrounded by these men who are the, the sages, the Jewish doctors. This would be when he stayed over, when he was with his family in Jerusalem for Passover, and, and was in the temple reasoning with him at the age of 12. And as you're looking at the picture, to the, to the right of him, so to the right of Jesus, you wouldn't look at this picture and think Yeshua. You'd think you know, European Jesus. To his right is, is one of the doctors of the law. He looks like someone out of a horror flick. He is, he, yes, he's got the hooked nose, but he looks positively evil, even his hands. I mean, this is a devilish-looking guy. Friends, this is what happened in history, and, and this is art illustrating it. This is art illustrating the point that the, the Jewish Jesus was so distant. Yeshua, the son of Miriam, Yeshua called rabbi, not reverend, he was so distant that now he was European. Okay, and even if I could understand that, just imagining Jesus to be like you. I mean, some of the medieval art, the, the clothes he's wearing be like medieval clothes. That's just how they envision things. But now when the Jews around him are demonized, 
that becomes the issue. Just as I said, when you bring a white Jesus, you're the colonizer, you're the slave trader, and you, and you are white, and you bring a white Jesus to people of color that you now colonize or enslave, what's that, what's that say about your religion? What's that say about your Jesus? That's when it becomes problematic, all right? The same way here, it's not so much the European Jesus in itself that's problematic. That's, that's bad enough separating from the Jewish roots of the faith, separating from historic truths that would, would join Yeshua with Moses and Isaiah and the people of Israel. That's bad enough. But with it, the demonizing of the Jews. All right, I got some probing questions when we come back. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. Jewish-related questions, we'll be getting to them shortly. With your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome. Welcome back to our Thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. I'll be getting to your calls shortly. So eager to interact with you on Jewish-related calls on this Thoroughly Jewish Thursday I want to return in a moment to our discussion about Jewish Jesus and how he's been represented or misrepresented in iconography, excuse me, artwork, the painting, statues. Put aside whether there should be painting, statues, or all. Just put that aside. They exist. We're commenting on what exists. All right? I'm not at home with either, personally, pictures, statues, but just put that aside entirely. So... <clears throat> One thing I just want to encourage you with is that we now have a donate button on the Ask Dr. Brown Facebook page. And it's right there as you're watching now on Facebook. And it's a super easy way for you to just click on it if you believe in what we're doing and recognize, friends, we're in a very unique role. When it comes to Jewish ministry, we are on the front lines of reaching out to the Jewish people with the good news of Messiah. Our materials are utilized literally around the world to reach Jewish people, to equip believers to reach Jewish people. And, and there's wonderful fruit of people coming to the Lord and hearts and minds, Jewish hearts and minds being open to Yeshua through our material. At the same time, we are pushing back against the lies of anti-Semitism. We are pushing back against manifestations of Christian anti-Semitism and misrepresentations of, of Judaism. So we're in that twofold battle here also, reaching out to our people resisting the anti-Semitism. And it can be often a difficult and lonely place, but the Lord is with us, and we know that you are with us. But if you can help us with a one-time gift, or maybe you want to contribute weekly or monthly, just click on that, whether it's a dollar or a hundred dollars, every dime is used. And as we started it this week, and the funds just started to come in, we've just been saying, praise God, good, that's, that's more money we can use to do more of this, reach more of you, produce more material, that'll be world-changing by the grace of God and will also help usher in the salvation of Israel. So thank you for partnering with us. Okay, the question of 
how Jesus is represented, the question of how Yeshua has been represented, there's no doubt that the church forgot its Jewish roots and Jesus became the, the fair-skinned European leader of a church that was very much not only separated from Israel and the Jewish people, it had become downright hostile to Israel and the Jewish people. The exact opposite of the divine intent that Gentile Christians would provoke Jews to envy and jealousy, that they would see God working in the lives of these Gentiles. They would see the quality of relationship with God, the presence of the Spirit. They would see that the Gentile Christians were enjoying covenant blessings that were once given to Israel, and they'd say, we want what you have. And then the Gentiles would say, well, it's your Messiah. That's who we have. It's your Messiah. Embrace him. The church forgot that. Hence, these representations of Jesus where he's the fair-skinned European and the Jews, these evil monster-type creatures. Well, Sean King, Black Lives Matter movement leader, is now saying the statues of the white European they claim is Jesus should also come down. So he's for pulling down statues now of Jesus represented as white. And, And he tweeted this out with a picture as well. He tweeted and said, experts have long since said this is likely the most accurate depiction of Jesus. White Americans who bought, sold, trade, raped, and worked Africans to death for hundreds of years in this country simply could not have this man at the center of their faith. And then there's a close-up picture of, of a man, is it African, black, Middle Eastern depiction? This man that's being depicted here. Okay, certainly not white, certainly not Caucasian. Well, is he right that experts have long since said this is likely the most accurate depiction of Jesus? No, 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 no. BBC, a few years back, did a report about trying to reconstruct what Jesus looked like. They said, certainly Jewish. That, that we know. But here's what BBC said about this image that Sean King tweeted out. Uh, BBC said that in 2001, a forensic anthropologist, uh, Richard Neve, created a model of a Galilean man for a BBC documentary called Son of God, working on the basis of an actual skull found in the region. He, did, didn't, uh, uh, he didn't claim it was Jesus' face. It was simply meant to, to prompt people to consider Jesus as being a man of his time and place, since we are never told uh, what he looked like, his actual description. Okay. So first, this is not experts have long said that's what he looked like. This is one man created this image, and it's not the image of an African. It's certainly not the image of a Caucasian. It's the image of a Middle Eastern Jew. Now, here's a little mental game I want you to play. I want you to picture a Jesus different than the one you pictured. In other words, if in your mind you always kind of saw him as a white Jesus— What if he was black? What if he was a black African? Yeah, a a Nigerian. That's and and that's where the gospel came from. And those those were the people of Israel, the the Nigerians. Okay, forget the contradiction terms. I'm just putting this out there. We have a problem with that. What if he was Asian? What if he was Chinese? Would you have a problem with that? Well, the big issue for black, for Asian, for white is that he wasn't any of the above. He was a Middle Eastern Jew. You have a problem with that. You have a problem with the Savior being a rabbi. And and if if he was walking in our midst today, he 
he would not look like your typical Christian. He would look like a Middle Eastern Jew. How's that, how's that work for you? Now, some say, no, 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 the book of Revelation, Revelation 1.14 tells us plainly he was black. Because Revelation 1.14 gives this description of Jesus, and it says his head and his hair were white like wool, white like snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. See, it says his hair was like wool. No, no, no. It's not talking about the texture. It's not talking about the texture of his hair. It's talking about the color, white like wool, white like snow. Was it saying that the texture of his hair was like snow? No, no, white like wool, white like snow. It's talking about the color. And then some translations that you see here say that his, his head was white. So was he a white man? No, this, first this is a vision of the glorified Yeshua, of the glorified Savior. That's what it's talking about. It's, it's this heavenly vision. Here he is. John sees him, falls at his feet. He's dead, the glorious Savior. Unless you believe there's literally a, a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth and his face literally shining like the sun. This is, a, this is the glorified Son of God, not the way he looked on earth. But to try to prove, well, he's black because his, his, his hair was wool. He doesn't say his hair was wool. It was white like wool, white like snow. But then some translations say his head was white. It's not a description of how he looked on earth. If you want to know who he really is, read more about him. My book, The Real Kosher Jesus, you'll find to be an eye-opener. That's the one that we worship as the Son of God. That's the one that we recognize as the Savior of the world. Yeshua, the Messiah, the son of Miriam, the one who had Ptolemy Dean disciples with names like Yaakov and Yochanan and Matityahu. Yeah, that one. Rabbi Yeshua, that's the one that we worship and adore as God in the flesh. 866-34 Truth. Let us start in Mexico with Vadim. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. How are you? Very well. Blessed. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You invited me to call again last time we spoke, so I am calling again. Yes, I remember um, that. <laughs> and the question I have today maybe it has to do with our prior discussion a little bit. Um, and um, the way I understand what you were saying, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that if a Jewish person becomes a believer in Yeshua and uh, uh, expresses interest in observing the Torah commandment, you, of course, will not stop them from doing so. But neither would you, uh, uh, like, encourage, not encourage, but uh, obligate him to, to, to do so. Um, and then, uh, if a Gentile person comes to faith in Jesus and at some point expresses an interest to observe some Torah commandments like, you know, Kashrut, Shabbat, stuff like that, you will not stop him from doing so. But at the same time, of course, you will not obligate him to do so either. So the question is, is there then a difference between a Jewish person who comes to faith in Jesus and a Gentile person that yeah. comes to faith in Jesus in respect to the Torah commandments? Yes. Great, great question, and, and well put. Thank you. So I'm, I'm going to answer, and if we don't have time for you to respond on the other, then we'll wait to the other side of the break, and, and we'll just keep you through the, through the break. So yes, there is a difference, because one is part of, of an identity with a people in history, and the feeling that there is a calling to maintain that identity and pass it on to future generations. The other is simply a, a, a spiritual connection 
and not an identity. In other words, if a Gentile believer feels that the Sabbath remains Saturday and that there is a calling through the Ten Commandments and beyond to observe the Sabbath, and they feel to do that, well, I'm not going to tell them it's supposed to be Sunday because God never changed it to Sunday in that regard, and they're perfectly free to do that. For a Jewish person, it would be part of identifying more deeply with their heritage and their people and saying, I remain Jewish, I've not stopped being Jewish, I remain connected with my people. For a Jew, the only issue I would have is if there becomes a sense of obligation that then brings them, especially under rabbinic tradition, and takes away a concept of salvation by grace and the reality of New Covenant life in the Spirit. For the Gentile, the danger would be that they try to take on Jewish identity or find a deeper spirituality in thinking of themselves as Jews rather than Gentiles. So there would be definitely differences in how they would approach it, and even how far they went, one would concern me, the other wouldn't. But we'll get your response on the other side of the break. Get to all your other calls when we come back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. This is Michael Brown. Blessed to have this time with you. 866-34-TRUTH for your Jewish-related questions. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7... In a different context, he's talking about husbands, wives, marriage, things like that. But then he says, if you're called, meaning called to salvation, circumcised, don't become uncircumcised. In other words, if you're Jewish, you don't become Gentile. If you're called circumcised or you're called uncircumcised, you're Gentile, don't become Jewish. And then he says something fascinating, circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing. Obviously, meaning in terms of salvation, what matters is keeping God's commands. Now, what you would say, well, circumcision is a command of God, but Paul's making a statement about spiritual standing. The issue is not circumcision, uncircumcision. It's being in right relationship with the Lord. But it is saying, continue in the calling that you had when you came to faith. Some come to faith as religious Jews, some as secular Jews, in terms of Jewish people coming to faith. How do they then respond? These are questions that come up. So we go to Vadim in Mexico. So, yes, my position, sir, would be that on the one hand, there is freedom in Messiah for Jew or Gentile, but that because of history and identity, that many Jews would have a particular burden and calling by God to identify with things that are distinctly part of Israel, like the Sabbath being a sign that God made between Israel and himself, and it was not a sign he made with, the, with all the world. So there would, be, there would be more reasons for that. And a Jew is already a Jew. They're not putting on being a Jew and thinking, now I've become something, where sometimes a Gentile feels that temptation, not recognizing that we're equal in the Lord. Okay. Um, I have a, you know, a little, like a follow-up question to what you said. May I, please? Yeah, I, I assumed you would. That's why I, I asked you to stay on through the break. Please, sir. <laughs> 
So, so that's what you were saying. The the passing. So I have kind of a two pronged response to that. The the identity issue passing to other gener to following generation for a Jewish believer then um, becomes an optional, as far as I understand. So if you're called to pass your identity, you do so if you feel called. And if you don't feel called to pass your identity, you don't. Um, that's, that's, my, that's how I hear what you're saying. And well, the other you, thing you, you were saying... pass your identity on in a certain way. I, I do believe that Jewish identity has certain importance in the Lord, but it does get subsumed... In, in other words, if God calls you to marry a Gentile and serve the Lord in, in a village in India and raise your family there, then your identity is not going to be the same as if you're part of a Jewish community in the heart of Israel. But overall, what you're saying, I, I, I could not find scripture that tells a Jewish believer in the Messiah that you are commanded by God to pass on Jewish identity to future generations although I believe that most would be called to do so. Right. No, the New Testament, of course, does not operate in this particular terminology, identity passing and stuff, so that's the modern thing. But the other thing you mentioned is, is uh, like, rabbinic tradition you would not necessarily support, but then how do you then respond to Jesus' saying in Matthew 23 that the scribes and Pharisees, they sit on Moses' feet? I mean, mm-hmm. what else do you have? You don't have... Tradition, Jewish tradition, passed through uh, from the believers of the first century. That that stopped. That was lost. The only thing we have is rabbinic tradition. Nothing else exists. Right. So the simple answer is that no, number one, uh, you there's not a Jewish believer on the planet that follows rabbinic tradition because any rabbi, the first thing is that you're that that you're rejecting Yeshua as divine. That there, well, there's I no mean, possible have, way. Right, so uh, automatically you're not submitting to them the way a traditional Jew would, correct? Not hundred, not hundred percent, but well, no, the biggest thing, in other words, in the eyes of the rabbis, I've had this discussion with traditional Jews. They think it's they think it's a joke when Messianic Jews follow rabbinic tradition. They they think it's completely absurd because it's it's to them like a mockery of the whole system of authority that's being rejected. It's not like you you pick and choose, you know, okay. Uh, you're in a situation, a, a society that requires arranged marriage, and, and you say to your parents, well, I'm going to defy you on that, but then I really want your advice on how to decorate the home. But Yeshua has already plainly rejected these very traditions in Matthew 15 and Mark 7. and says, your traditions make void the Word of God. And then he spends the Everyone, rest of Matthew yeah. 20, he spends the rest of Matthew 23 laying into many of their traditions. So there are two ways to read it. One is they are governing authorities now. So for now, submit to them. But he's told us in Matthew 21, 43, specifically about them, that the kingdom will be taken from you, the corrupt Jewish leadership, and given to a people bearing its fruit, which then become the Jewish apostles. That's one thing. The others take it as as extreme irony, extreme sarcasm, saying, oh, yeah, yeah, follow them. Uh, Do what they say, but don't follow their example because they're hypocrites. But either way, he's certainly not saying, follow what the rabbis teach. When's, when's the first Jewish law code written? Not compilation of laws of the mission. The first Jewish law code is Maimonides in the 12th century. And then the daily one that's followed is Shulchan Aruch in the 16th century. And, and this is a completely different expression of the faith than what's come out of the, of the New Covenant. It's, com- it, it's, it, it's, it's not just a little different, it's completely different. It's orientation to how we live and what matters and all of that. 
So you may learn, if you want to follow Jewish tradition up through the, the time of Yeshua, before the split came and, and before rabbinic Judaism fully began to develop, which is post-destruction of the temple, and find things that go back that far, that's fine. Or if you think this is an interesting tradition, we like it, but to be under the authority of the rabbis, it's totally contrary to the spirit of the New Covenant and totally contrary to the mandate of the New Testament, which is why the apostles, <coughs> excuse me, came in constant conflict with the, 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 the Jewish leadership. And from what we can see, the Nazarenes, these were the Jewish believers who continued to live Jewishly from what we can see. And if you don't know this, Vadim, check out Ray Pritz's book on Nazarene Judaism, uh, uh, the Nazarene faith, from what we can tell, the Jewish believers who continued to live as Jews, second, third, fourth centuries, maybe even beyond that, they also rejected growing rabbinic tradition. So check that out, sir, and I appreciate the, the interaction. All right, uh, 866 three, four, two. And by the way, we can differ on this. Let's make sure we keep Yeshua-centered, that we live in the Spirit, and that we are sharing the gospel, the good news of Messiah, freely. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, we go to Diego in New York. Thank you for calling the line of fire. Uh, thank you, Dr. Brown. It's an honor to be on the line of fire again. Thanks. Um, so my question is, um, where in the Old Testament does it, say, does it say that the Messiah will be deity or God himself? Yeah, the, the clearest passage would be Isaiah 9-6 in English. 9-5 in Hebrew, that speaks of the son of David that would be born, who would have an, an everlasting uh, kingdom without limit, that he's described as Pele Yoetz El Gibor Aviad Sar Shalom, that these are the names spoken over him, and El Gibor is mighty God, and El Gibor is the way Yahweh himself is described in Isaiah 10, 21. That would be the single clearest passage pointing to the divine nature of the Messiah in the Hebrew Bible. Um, uh, I kind of have a problem with Isaiah 9-6, because it says eternal father. Wouldn't that be like a form of modalism? Ah, yeah, great question. Yeah, aviad uh, can be translated a couple different ways. If it's eternal father, it means father of the people. That's all it's speaking of, the king as the father of the people. But Aviad, uh, father of Ad, father of eternity, <clears throat> can also mean a possessor of eternity. So that's another way of reading it. If it's speaking of him just in terms of divine nature, then it would be possessor of eternity. You know, the Av, the father of something, is the, is the originator of it. So he's the possessor of eternity or simply eternal father as, as the king being the father of the people. Uh, but e either way, El Gibor plainly spoken about him uh, in terms of his divine nature, and we know that that's a messianic prophecy. There's no doubt about that, that it's, it's speaking about Yeshua. Okay, thank you. You are, you are very welcome. Appreciate it. By the way, Diego... Uh, if, if you look at uh, the name of the book of James in, in Spanish, it's Santiago. I used to wonder, well, Santiago, where'd that come from? Because it's originally Yaakov, Jacob, 
and then it comes into English. It's it goes into Latin as as Jacobus, and then become Jacobus, then becomes Jacobus, and then becomes James. But it's not James; it's Jacob. All right, and then uh, in Spanish it was San Diego, Diego being a, a corrupted form of of Jacob, but it comes from that, and then Saint Diego becomes Santiago. If you're wondering, how do we get Santiago? Where'd that come from? But seeing Diego's name reminded me. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Atlanta. Blake, thanks for joining us on the line of fire. Hey, hey, my beloved brother. How are you? Blessed, man. Thank you. Great. Um, thank you. First off, thank you so much for just how, how you guys have been such a blessing um, to just all the believers in the world. I'm very grateful for what God's doing through your ministry. Well, thank you. It's, it's a joy and privilege to do what we can. Thank you, sir. Awesome. Uh, I have a couple of questions regarding Ethiopian Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that many, there are many Jews that have mixed, um, mixed views about, you know, are Ethiopian Jews really Jews? I know that the, the one rabbi, one of the head rabbis of Israel, did declare that they are, in fact, Jews, and, you know, um, there's been some really awesome things that Israelis have done for the Ethiopian Jews that have been in diaspora, but I am just, I have a couple of questions regarding um, what, biblically, uh, do we know about, like, is there any biblical history regarding Ethiopian Jews? Has it been prophesied that they would be scattered, that Jews would be scattered in Ethiopia? And then, um, what are what are God's in time plan, uh, in time plan for Ethiopian Jews or the nation of Ethiopia. Is there anything that yeah. um, you know about that, or what are your opinions regarding that? Sure thing. All right, we got a break. If we come back, we'll address those with whatever we do know scripturally. Eight six six three four two. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thank you, friends, for joining us on Thoroughly Jewish Thoughts Thursday on the line of our 866-34-TRUTH. Okay, so Ethiopian Jews, Blake, a few things. Number one, according to some Ethiopian traditions, that the origin of Ethiopian Jews goes back to a Queen of Sheba visiting mm-hmm. King Solomon and that they allegedly had sexual relations, and out of that, that's the connection to Israel, and that's where things come from. And the most famous leader of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie, as far as I remember, claimed to be a direct descendant of Queen, the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon. According to everything I know, though, that's just myth. That's just tradition. Uh, the I mean, we can't refute it categorically, but... Uh, as far as we can tell, as Jews were scattered in different parts of the world, including Africa, that they would intermarry, and some would intermarry and assimilate, 
right, just be lost in the culture, but others would intermarry as people from the outside converted, like Ruth. And that's why you have mm-hmm. Jews of all different colors. So I've often explained it. You can convert in, and then if you stand in the area long enough and there's enough intermarriage, and those people become part of the Jewish people, then soon enough you'll look entirely like the, the local community there. So the, the only reason that Israel went through great effort and sacrifice and even risk to bring the Ethiopian Jews back to Israel was because they believed that there were legitimately Ethiopian Jews, many thousands. Mm-hmm. Not all Ethiopians, but specific Ethiopian Jews who lived as Jews, who identified as Jews. The problem was when they came back to Israel, uh, they did not recognize the traditions of, of Orthodox rabbis. In other words, the, those were not part of their traditions, which would suggest strongly that they became part of the people of Israel before these traditions were developed. Now, the rabbis say the traditions go all the way back to Moses. I would say they certainly don't go all the way back to Moses. And, and, and this is one of the arguments we use to say this is one of the proofs. Now, some say, well, they forgot over time, whatever. That's the debate. So the men had to go through a symbolic circumcision, just the, the drawing of blood with a, a pinprick, not an actual further circumcision or anything like that. Uh, so and they would have been circumcised. That would have been part of their practice anyway, going back to ancient times. But that's, that was part of the conflict, and people said, well, you're not recognizing them as fully Jews. That's not right, etc." In Israel, uh, many have been fully incorporated into the society, but it, it, there has been some racism in some places. And, and uh, many in Israel were upset about that. They've really sought to fix that, where the Ethiopians were, were not treated as equal citizens. Uh, you know, Israel has its sins and weaknesses as well. I believe in many ways that's been addressed, but there's still been protests by the Ethiopians saying we're not treated fairly and equally. Um, so it's a shame they were brought back. Israel took the initiative to bring them in, and, and then they've had some hardship to overcome once there. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the clearest prophecy to me about Jews in Ethiopia would be Isaiah 11:11. 11, 11. So Isaiah, the 11th chapter it says, it will also come about in that day, speaking of the, the messianic reign, that my Lord will again redeem a second time with his hand the remnant of his people who remain from where? Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, and from the islands of the sea. So scattered around the world. But Cush is Ethiopia. Now, Cush in Genesis 2 in the Garden of Eden is not Ethiopia. There may be a, a different Kush that's mentioned in some passages. Uh, we just look geographically, it doesn't work for that being Ethiopia. But here, very clearly, when Kush is used, it means Ethiopia. So it is saying that there will be Jews when, when, when Messiah brings the final gathering of Jews scattered around the world, that there will be Jews in Ethiopia. So that's confirmation of that. Yeah. And what does that look like? A final, is, is not the modern day state of Israel that final gathering? Is there going to be something even bigger with more Jews? Well, I, I believe it's a big part of the final gathering, and right now there there's six million Jews in, in Israel, so roughly half of the world Jewish population is there. But I don't believe that every last Jew all around the world will have been brought back to Israel when Messiah returns. So as I understand it, uh, with his return, then those that are scattered will be brought back in even more supernatural ways. Uh, now, 
it's possible that everyone will be brought back first. But as far as I can see, the, there's the, the final, there's a vast majority, large numbers brought back, but still others scattered. And that'll be then the, the end of the, the regathering when Messiah establishes his kingdom in Jerusalem. Hey, Blake, thank you for the call and the questions. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Martinez, California. Rashad, thank you for calling the line of fire. Um, so my question was this, in terms of the depiction, because I know you were talking about the Sean King thing, and when I seen it on the Internet, many, sadly to say, many Christian people of European descent were saying, you know, it's an anti-Jesus thing, when it clearly wasn't, to me. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems to me like the depiction of Jesus it wouldn't represent that of an Ashkenazi Jew or a Sephardic Jew. It would represent that of a Mizrahi Jew from southern Iraq and Lebanon. Yeah, much much closer to that. Yeah, much closer to that, sure, for sure. And and and, and, and closer, closer to, if you were saying, is it closer to just in broad terms, black or white? A little closer to black in, in that respect. But yeah, definitely, Middle Eastern Jew and some that continue to look like this today, or or Egyptians, you know, so that more brown skinned. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's like. Uh, cognitive dissonance, I mean, they can't really see the effect that that type of thing has on people. Like, I made a video and I said uh, I debunked something from Sean King. I was like, originally, it just wasn't a white supremacy, quote-unquote. It's just that people make God's own images like Zenofany said. And, uh, however, as as it spread to the New World, it began to symbolize, take on that symbol of, hey, Jesus is white, therefore God is white, therefore whites are better than everyone else. Yeah. Yeah, in, in, in fact, Rashad, um, part of the preaching of the gospel to black slaves and things like that was preaching uh, Christianity was white, so this will kind of whiten your soul. So yeah, the original depiction of a Jesus who looks Chinese, who looks black, who looks Eskimo, who looks European, who looks whatever, that's, that's people projecting him because he's their savior and he's one of us, and, and that's only natural. But as I said, the issue is when he's separated from his Jewishness, and then with that separated from Middle Eastern background. So on the one hand, I, I think Sean King is completely in left field, and point after point after point of what he's saying here, and in his attack on the, the, the white statues. On the flip side, he's absolutely right in terms of saying that, that many white Christians would have a problem with a Yeshua who looked like a first century Middle Eastern Jew. Now, he's depicting as if he looked like an African, but yeah, definitely be a problem. And it's a question I've asked for you. I try to meditate on these things. What if this picture like this? Jesus is black. All the disciples are black. Look like Nigerians today. Or Jesus is Indian. All the disciples were, you know, and, and, and you know, what, how does that affect your mind, your thinking? Yeah, so let's be challenged with that. Let's put aside the silliness of what Sean King's saying and the ridiculous thing about pulling down statues. Let's talk about the issues. And that's the other thing. He wasn't a white Jesus or a black Jesus or a Chinese Jesus. He was a first century Middle Eastern Jewish Jesus. That's where the church is greatly offended. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Hey, friends, just another reminder. If you're watching on YouTube, bottom of the screen, there's a dollar sign. Click on that and, and you stand with us and help us Get the line of fire out to more and more people in more and more effective ways. On Facebook, there's a donate button. We know we reach millions in our Facebook 
feeds in so many different ways. If you're watching and want to stand with us, gift the large or small. We feel it and we appreciate it. Uh, let's do this quickly. Uh, thanks. For, all right. There was a question from Mason in Fayetteville, Alabama, as to whether there are multiple Isaiahs. You say, what are you talking about, multiple Isaiahs? If you go to a seminary other than a strong evangelical conservative seminary, or in your Christian tradition, a strongly conservative tradition, you will learn that there were two Isaiahs, if not three. Now, were they all named Isaiah? Well, that's not really the issue. The issue would be that the book of Isaiah, as we have it, was largely composed by three authors. This would be the liberal view. The first Isaiah, responsible for Isaiah 1 through 39. The second Isaiah, responsible for 40 through 55 or 40 through 66. Others would say a third Isaiah, responsible for 50, uh, 56 to 66. So uh, proto-Isaiah, deutero-Isaiah, trito-Isaiah, or first Isaiah, second Isaiah, third Isaiah. Others would say, well, John 12 refutes that because John 12 joins Isaiah 6 with Isaiah 53 and says the one who wrote Isaiah 53 saw Jesus, so Yeshua, and Isaiah 6. So conservative scholars have normally said one Isaiah. The issue is that from the 40th chapter on, it's words of comfort to the exiles in Babylon, which doesn't happen for like 100 plus years after uh, the first part of Isaiah is written. So you would either say that that first Isaiah saw prophetically in the future and delivered these things, or you could say that he delivered these words, which were then transmit it and further develop by his disciples into the book of Isaiah as we have it today. In other words, you could argue for one Isaiah, but say that things were transmitted through his disciples who then received further revelation, but all in the name of Isaiah, and that makes up the book. All right, we'll be back with you tomorrow. Be sure to check out latest articles, latest videos at AskDrBrown.org. Together, we're making a difference.